Well, my sermon today is about the fires of hell and let the weather be an object lesson to you. I'm just kidding. It's not really. My sermon is about Jeremiah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, says the Lord. Therefore says the Lord, the God of Israel, I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. Prophet Jeremiah was a man of hard and hopeful words in dark times. I have to give you some backstory to shed light on what this passage was really saying. In Jeremiah's day, you see, those of you who, uh, who know this, know that the once great kingdom of Israel had become a shadow of its former self. It was living off of the past glory of the days of old King David and King Solomon, but in reality it was actually weak, small, decadent, fearful, and largely faithless. The ten northern tribes of Israel had long ago split off from the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and then had then been swept away and lost to history. Only the little rump kingdom of Judah remained, huddled together around the old city of David, Jerusalem, with the vast empires of the day, Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt threatening to swallow them up. This was Jeremiah's time. It was a dark time. He served during Judah's very last five kings. Josiah, let's see if I can get these pronunciations right, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, the last five. Young King Josiah started out well. He was a good king. He was a righteous and wise ruler, leading his people to rediscover the law and renew their worship of the Lord. But everybody who followed after Josiah was distinguished only by greed, corruption, dithering, and self-interest. You might call them the Warren Hardings and Millard Fillmores of the kings of Israel, memorable only for what they did wrong. When Jeremiah proclaimed God's woeful judgment upon Israel's shepherds, this is who he had in mind, first and foremost, I think. A king of Israel was supposed to be something like the old kings and queens of England, by the grace of God, defender of the faith and protector of the realm, leading the people in doing justice and showing mercy, just like David and Solomon. But the kings of Israel, by this point, had done just the opposite. They're all like King Ahab now, leading the people in the worship of idols, power, of pleasure, and of wealth. They had neglected to do justice and to show mercy, and instead had allowed the weak to be trampled on by the strong. The shepherds who were responsible for their flock had instead destroyed and scattered their people, Jeremiah says. Therefore, woe be to them, Jeremiah says. You have not attended to my people as you ought, and so the Lord will attend to you for your evil doing. Of this you may be certain. Jeremiah's woe from the Lord, though, wasn't just directed against Israel's kings. It was also against Israel's people. That becomes clear in passage after passage. The people of Israel, as Jeremiah saw it, you might say, had gotten the king that they deserved. 
In one passage he says, My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. They have forsaken me, says the Lord, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When I read that passage, I think of the broken cistern in my grandparents' basement in North Dakota that can't hold water. In their faithlessness, they supported corrupt political and religious leaders who gave them exactly what they wanted. Leaders may have been bad, but the people wanted them to be that way. The prophets prophesy lies, Jeremiah says. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. Well, I wonder if any of this sounds familiar to us today. I don't mean to draw any analogies exactly or score any partisan points. As a preacher of the gospel, it's my job to proclaim the word and then leave it up to you to translate it into politics and everyday life. But I think it's no partisan claim to point out that American institutions over the past decades have suffered from a sharp decline in trust. We don't trust, you might say, our shepherds anymore. Political institutions are part of that, to be sure. Polls show that Americans, by and large, have basically no trust in Congress and not much more trust in the presidency or the bureaucracy. But it really goes far beyond politics. We have little trust these days in our judiciary, fearing that it's politicized in one direction or another. We have less and less trust in our criminal justice system and our police, fearing that the deck is stacked against people of color and the poor. We have less and less trust in our news media, in our universities. We have little trust in our churches, too, with many Catholics in particular scarred by the decades-long sexual abuse scandals, truly horrifying in their extent, and many simply concluding that they can't trust that what such a flawed institution teaches is trustworthy and true. As an aside, I sometimes hear people say that they're through with organized religion. It makes me want to tell them, come on over to St. Augustine's. Don't worry, we're not all that organized. I see to that. We don't, I think, even have very much trust anymore these days in family and marriage. With so many marriages ending in divorce, over half, that an increasing number of people don't get married at all. We don't trust the shepherds. We feel like the shepherds have let us down, whoever they may be. I wonder if this is something of what it felt like to live in Jeremiah's time in the last days of Israel. I wonder if people then, like many people now, had given up on trusting altogether. I wonder if people looked around at the shepherds of society, at the leaders of the temple and the kingdom and the community, and saw nothing but faithless, self-interested salesmen, bent on scattering and destroying the people just to make a buck or get ahead. In a world like that, it's perhaps no wonder that so many in that time did turn away from the worship of God to the worship of idols. Israel's God, as you know, 
was the God of the covenants, the promise-keeping God, the God who made promises to Abraham and Moses and kept them, the God whose very name was His faithfulness. I am who I am, or I will be who I've promised to be. Israel's God reveals Himself as faithfulness itself, completely worthy of our trust. Israel's God has no hidden agenda. Israel's God will never let you down. Never. But, and here's the but. How do you believe in such a God? How could you? When the whole world around you looks like it's out to make a quick buck at your expense. Like the hucksters at a cheap fly-by-night carnival at the outskirts of town, here today and gone tomorrow, full of high-flown promises designed to get you to trust them just long enough so that they can steal your wallet. How do you believe that the creator of the universe is trust and faithfulness itself when your whole life has led you to a point where you sort of live in a perpetual defensive crouch, arms up and eyes watching for the hidden trick your heart always waiting for the next shoe to drop. It applies to us too, doesn't it? You see, I can understand why on a Sunday morning there are many more people out there than there are in here. People have all kinds of reasons. Some of them not so good, but some of them good. One reason I often hear is that people feel burned, betrayed, broken. They don't trust church, so they don't come. They don't trust politics, so they don't vote. They don't trust men, or they don't trust women, so they don't marry. They may not even trust themselves, so they don't have kids. And when you listen to them, and they trust you enough to tell you, People usually have some good reasons in their history for this lack of trust. Something happened to them. It was probably little different in Jeremiah's time. And so we, like they, turn instead from the worship of the one true God whose name is faithfulness itself and turn instead to little idols that we think we can count on. Idols that we can carry around with us, put in our pockets, like the idol of the flickering screen, or the bank account, or the quick pick-me-up. Faced with this, we are faced with this lack of trust that makes it difficult for people to trust the God whose name is faithfulness. Then. What do we as the people of God do? What do we as the people who are here, who have been given the gift of faith, what are we to do to bear witness to those around us who don't have it? Well, I began by saying that Jeremiah was a man of both hard and hopeful words in dark times, not just doom and gloom. Jeremiah was not, let's say, an optimistic man, but he was a hopeful man. He had hope because he knew God, who had chosen him from childhood to be a prophet. 
in dark times, Jeremiah had an anchor. And because that anchor was God, the God of Israel who was faithfulness itself, Jeremiah knew that even in the midst of dark times and deep problems that had no obvious solution, God would make a way there where there was no way, even if it meant that God in person had to come someday and make things right. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah knew that in the midst of faithless shepherds who destroyed and scattered their people, the Lord is our shepherd even still. And so long as he is, we shall not be in want, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself. I think those of us who are like Jeremiah in this way, those of us who have his assurance, his faith, even in the midst of dark times, I think we have a similar calling today. I'll leave you with a little story about what that might be. Last weekend, Emily and I went to the Kids Springs swimming pool with our little son, Charles. He's only one and a half, so of course he can't swim yet. He thinks he can. But one of his favorite games is to sit himself on the ledge of the pool and then sort of launch himself out into the water where one of us had better be ready to catch him. As he was doing this, I thought to myself, what trust this takes. A lot of trust this little boy must have. He can't swim, but he trusts that Mama or Dada will be there to open up our arms and catch him. It made me think that that's what a parent does. It's our job to be people that he can trust without fail. To create a home where he knows that he's loved. So that one day he can launch himself out into the world with an open and faithful heart and entrust himself to the waiting arms of God. I think that's a little parable for what we as Christians are called to do too. We are called to be people worthy of trust, people that others can count on. We are called as a community of faith to create a church family where people know that they are loved. We are called, each of us, to be good shepherds of the flocks in our care, wherever they may be, at home, at work, at school, at church, so that in the midst of dark times and deep waters, our children and our neighbors and everyone we meet may, by God's grace, someday take that leap of faith out from the edge of the pool into waters where they would surely drown. And then laugh for joy when they discover that the Good Shepherd, their Heavenly Father, has caught them in His, arm, in his arms and will not let them go. Let us then be good shepherds. And may we, in so doing, point others to the great shepherd of the sheep, the God who watches over us all.